Here we are on the second day. It's almost over. Feast to Passover. Let's go back to First uh, John again this evening. When you compare the two, the final teaching that Christ gave his disciples soon to become apostles, uh, John pretty well recaps right here. He goes over through a lot of the same information that we read past overnight. So I think it's good we go ahead through it. Uh, it's very basic, fundamental, what Christianity is all about. And if there's any time, we need to get down to fundamentals of what we're here for. This is certainly it as we get here to the end of the age and uh, our judgment is in the balance with God. So we need to be sure we're doing those things which He wants. We can be excited about prophecy or we can be excited about new knowledge or some such thing. And I do have some comments along some of those lines, I think, before we're done uh, with this festival. But in my mind, uh, being fundamentally correct at this point with the basics is as good as you can get. Because we need to be sure that Christ will know us when he comes. Uh, and John does a very excellent job of encapsulating what Christ said there. He remembered it well. Uh, I'm sure he lived it. And then he passed it along to future generations, including us. So last time we came down through verse 7, where in the first few verses he gave his credentials, who he was, and that he was truly a witness, and then tells us to walk in the light, to fellowship with the Father and the Son, and then secondarily to fellowship with each other. And of course, Christ said, love the Father above all, love your brother as yourself, is a summation of the commandments. So that's essentially what he's saying here. And then he says very clearly, the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And that means it wipes out the death penalty. Uh, we don't have to die for our sins since he died for them himself. That doesn't mean we ought to sin a lot so that grace may abound. Uh, it doesn't work that way. We're supposed to be growing and overcoming and slowing sin down in our lives and stopping it as possible. But thankfully, when we do make mistakes and when we are weak and we have trouble, as we will, uh, he's always there to be willing to forgive us and what a wonderful continual sacrifice that is, because we simply cannot go through life without a certain amount of sin. Let's pick it up then in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So self-deception is a huge thing that human beings are and go through, but... Uh, Hopefully none of us are so truly deceived and self-deceived that we don't think we have any sin. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think any of us could say we don't sin every day. 
if we put self ahead of God in any way, fashion, or form, in any thought, that's idolatry. Uh, pure and simple, putting ourselves ahead of God uh, in such a way that demeans or takes away from Him or in some way infringes His Word or His way. And uh, being human, I don't know, maybe you've made it through a day without any sin of any kind, but I kind of doubt I ever have. Uh, I'm not, I don't ever remember being comatose for 24 hours. <laughs> so, uh, there's some kind of selfish or idolatrous thought that goes through everybody's mind, or they treat somebody a little less than themselves. He says we ought to love each other as much as we do ourselves. And sometimes the sin is against self. Because we demean or put down in a wrong way or criticize ourselves sometimes in a wrong way, which is putting down a son of God. So whether it's somebody else you're putting down or yourself, uh, that can be a sin in itself. He did mention that fornication was a sin against your own body. So there is that category. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't look at ourselves and see our faults. We certainly should. Uh, and to have those attitudes at the beginning of chapter 5 of Matthew, of being poor in spirit and meek and humble and everything, sure, we have to recognize vanity, ego, selfishness, all those things we need to recognize and be working on getting rid of. But what I'm talking about is where we call ourselves a fool or condemn ourselves. We're not to condemn others. We should not condemn ourselves either. Now, we can analyze and examine our fruits, whether they're good or bad. But we're not to put ourselves down and become depressed and discouraged because we condemn ourselves. Now, God doesn't want us to be down, discouraged, and depressed. That's not an attitude that you find anywhere in Scripture that He wants us as human beings to have. We have to overcome those attitudes. He wants us to be bold before Him and to be upbeat. And if you can find anything good, as Philippians 4.8 says about anybody else, if there's anything good about you, you ought to find that too. Because it can be encouraging to look at yourself and say, well, I've made a little progress here, or I've made some progress there. I'm, I'm working at it, and I'm growing. We need to be able to see growth in ourselves. You know, a kid, sometimes parents will mark a mark on the door frame, and then the kid keeps backing up there, and he gets a little taller and a little taller, and he sees progress. Well, that encourages him, because he figures, well, I really might grow up someday, if he sees the progress. So, we should be able to correctly analyze without bias or deceit and see where there is improvement because that encourages us to make more. 
if we're always down on ourselves, then that isn't good either because it leads to frustration and discouragement and makes our self-pity worse. And self-pity is self-centeredness and selfishness is what it is. So we don't have room for pity parties. Jesus walked this earth for 33 and a half years and never had a pity party for himself. He was a man of sorrows because he saw the wretchedness and sin in the world. So he was sorrowful about it. He was sober about it. But he didn't have a pity party. And even as he was being crucified, he said not a word and turned himself over to the Father for what needed to be done. So he didn't wallow in self-pity at all. He realistically faced what was happening and dealt with it in a godly manner. And it was a very difficult thing to do because it would have been really easy for him to feel sorry for himself at that point and flush out and not make it. But instead... He focused on us and what he was doing for us, and he even focused on those who were giving him the stripes and punishing him and hurting him and said, Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. That was not a pity party. That was an outgoing thought for others, even when he was going through the worst pain that any human being has ever suffered. It had to be the worst for him to be a savior to anyone who was second in line with the second worst. But his thought was outward. And that's what we train ourselves to do. So, recognize our sin, but don't get down on yourself. What do you do when you recognize your sin? You go to God and ask Him to give you strength and help from His Spirit to overcome that sin. Not wallow in self-pity because you still got it. Do what's necessary to overcome it. Move forward. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's direction on what to do when you recognize, yes, I do have sin. You go to him. You tell him about it. Here's what I did, Father. I'm sorry. I, I was weak. I was neglectful. I was omitting what I should do or whatever the situation is. We talk to him about it and tell him how we feel. And he is absolutely faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That removes the penalty, and you no longer are under that. That's why he says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Whatever sin is of this day... We need to, at the end of the day, ask forgiveness for it 
and know that we have a clean slate starting in the morning, according to Lamentations again, gives us a new start every day. So you should face each day, having confessed and asked forgiveness the night before, the beginning of the new day, really, at sundown, or before you go to bed, however you do it, so that you wake up in the morning with a clean start. And you should recognize and feel that clean start. If you're still feeling down and dirty, you're going to tend to stay that way until you get cleaned up. If you work and you get dirty physically, you're going to feel dirty till you take a bath. And if you wait three days to take the bath, you'll be dirty until it happens, no matter what. So if you confess and forsake your sin and ask God's forgiveness, the next morning you're cleansed, you're pure. Then the job is to go out and stay that way as long as you can through the day. You might sin before you ever get out of bed. It's possible to think wrong thoughts before you even get up. But we should be working at it all day long, is to walk as Christ walked, think as he thought, and treat others as we would have others treat us. That needs to be foremost in our minds, to serve God with all our heart and treat everybody like we want to be treated. That's been said a thousand times, a little bit different ways here and there, but it's always true. And that's what John felt moved to say here in his last epistles. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Because he said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's his analysis of it, and that's the truth. So if we say anything different from that, that's a lie, that's a sin. And we're saying he's a liar because he said we had sinned and we said we didn't. So who's lying there? Well, that's not too hard to figure out. Chapter 2 then. My little children. He was in his 90s at this point when he wrote this. So pretty much everyone he wrote it to was younger than him. I think he was even in his late 90s at this point. These things I write to you that you sin not. Okay. Admit you've sinned. Try not to sin. Confess your sin and ask forgiveness. And then work it not sinning. And if any man sin, if it does happen, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's always there as a mediator is the word, an advocate, someone there for us to present our case to the Father. And he is the propitiation for our sins. So we have the very, very best one to represent us because he's the one that died for us and shed his blood so we could be forgiven. You couldn't get a better attorney on your side than him. <laughs> he's, he's got all the legalities figured out. 
and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, they are not at this point being forgiven because the whole world is deceived as to who God is, and they're living a life of sin in Satan's world. So he's not going to the Father as an advocate for them at this time. But before the plan is all done, he will have represented everyone in the millennium, the great white throne judgment, as we know. To each has his judgment in his proper time. Judgment is now on us, so he's our advocate, propitiation, now, and for others later when they have their opportunity. So his main concern at this point is not seven billion people, but a few thousand are the ones he's concerned about. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, how clear a statement is that? I mean, even the Protestants say you've got to know the Lord. Well, here he, defi- he defines how you know him. And they, almost across the board, say the commandments are done away with and you don't need them. All you have to have is his name. Well, they twist Paul, clear out of context to find that. Christ made it very clear in John 13 through 17 that love is the keeping of the commandments. And he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He made it clear there, and John is simply repeating the same thing here. Now, if there's anything he got from Christ, this is it. So anything Paul wrote in there cannot be changed in any way to contradict what Christ said there and what Paul is saying here. The Bible interprets itself. And if people people who twist Paul around and Galatians around are not honestly reading the rest of the book. Because Paul could not be saying that the commandments are done away with and be preaching the truth. Because Christ and John make it very clear what the truth is. That's how you know you know him if you keep the commandments. Now he makes it even stronger. He that says, I know him. And there are a lot of Protestants that say that. I know him. What a friend I have in Jesus, or another hundred songs they sing. He that says I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar. The Methodists, the Baptists, the Church of Christ, the Episcopalians, uh, the Mormons, you name it, who say they know him, and say that the commandments are done away, are liars, and they don't know him. They are not Christians. A Christian is a follower of Christ. Christ kept the commandments. So if you say they're done away, you're not a follower of Christ, and therefore you cannot be a Christian. 
Joe Koch is a blaspheming liar and a son of the devil. Do we get that? I hope we did a long time ago. Because he said the commandments are done away with. John the Apostle calls him a liar. Verse 5, But whoso keeps his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. If you keep his commandments, and the commandments are love, and John will say that in so many words here in a little bit, that's how we know that we are in Christ. He that says he abides in him also himself to walk even as he walked. And he never broke the law, never broke the commandments. So if he was our example, then we should do as he did. And he kept his father's commandments. They aren't done away with. I know you know this, but it's very hard in this world to keep God's commandments because of Satan and the world and our own nature. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. From the time Christ began teaching, uh, this is the commandment he gave. The old commandment is the word which you've heard from the beginning. Now, they had heard from the Pharisees and others who read in the temple the Old Testament. They had heard that. But they had also heard Christ come and give his teaching. So what they heard from the very beginning was the Old Testament, and Christ taught the Old Testament as well and its commandments, only he raised them to a higher plane of obedience than had ever been done before. Going from strictly the physical to the spirit. Not just action, but thoughts and words. So he says, nothing's changed. Again, a new commandment, I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is past, and the true light now shines. Christ was the light to the world, and the apostles became a light to the world. And the members, and we, are also to be lights to the world. True in him and in us. Because the darkness is past, and the true light now shines. He that says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even till now. So he shows an example here of what it is to be in the light. And that is to love your brother as yourself, not to hate him. Even one not called a brother anymore, maybe because of sin or whatever, you still don't hate him. You still don't put them down. You pray for them that they'll repent and be a part of God's kingdom someday. That's the right attitude to have toward your enemies. 
He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. He's, when you walk in the light, you can see where you're going. If there's a stone in the road, you can see it. If it's dark, you stumble over it. So he says, if we have the light of Christ, if we understand what he expects of us, then we're walking in the light, and we don't stumble. We don't fall on our faces. But he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not where he goes because that darkness has blinded his eyes. So if we despise or call someone, you absolute worthless fool, as Christ says in Matthew 5, and have that kind of spiteful, demeaning attitude towards someone, we're still walking in darkness and we can't see where we're going because we've got a whole wrong approach and attitude. And that's not the light. The darkness has blinded his eyes. So attitude toward others is very, very important. And he said, if you won't forgive them, I won't forgive you. I'll treat you just like you treat other people. And that should be a, a matter of our own consciousness as we go through the day. Here's so-and-so. Am I going to treat him or her the same way I want to be treated? If you're going to meet somebody, you ought to say, how am I going to treat this person when I see them? The way I would like to be treated? Yeah, that's it. You want to be treated good, don't you? Yep. Verse 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. So one of the main purposes I'm writing you is so that you might realize and know that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, I... Uh, I think spent quite a bit of time on that even yesterday talking about how we need to unhitch the trailer we're dragging behind us of our sins because that slows us down. It impedes our progress. If you've ever done any towing and you put a 15,000 pound trailer behind your truck, it slows you down on the hills. <laughs> You can feel that weight back there. You're carrying it. You're dragging it along. And dragging sin along behind, spiritually speaking, puts a drag on you. And it's hard to grow and walk in light when you're dragging darkness behind you. So he's saying the same thing here. Your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. All right, not for your name's sake, his name's sake. God is the sovereign of the entire universe, and his son is in second, second in command under him. And he has created us to be like him someday. So we have taken on the name of God, he's our father. 
our brother has the same name. We are already Elohim in that sense. We are not yet glorified, but we are part of the God family, which is what Elohim is. We've generally spoken of that as the Father and the Son only, as part of the God family. Well, they're the only two that have been glorified to this point. So we are the unglorified Elohim. We represent him. We represent his name. We don't represent Satan. This world does. They're of their father, the devil. No, we're of our father in heaven. Therefore, we have his name already put upon us. Says so he's going to put his seal, his seal on us. Not the beast's seal, but his seal. As his. And that's why we're still human. Hold everything back. I get all 144,000 sealed. Some of them were sealed long ago, like John the Apostle. So what he's saying here is respect and honor your family name, your father and your older brother. For his name's sake. Now, what Satan does when he goes to accuse us before the Father and the Son is to say, they're besmirching your name. They're sinning against you. And he does say that all sin is against God. Not really against others. Now, what sin you do on this earth can affect others. It can affect them horribly, depending on what it is. But the sin is not against them. The sin is against God. The hurt is to them, but the sin is against the lawgiver, because it's his law, and therefore the sin is against him. Now, to some degree, that sin is there. You sin against yourself, or you sin against somebody else in a way that is true. And yet, on the other hand, the ultimate sin is against God. And it's sin, his law, that has to be forgiven. So, yeah, it, it reaches into people's lives personally. But truly, above and beyond that, it's a sin against God. So he says, uh, verse 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. So he's including everybody here in some form of relationship with God. That we all are responsible. Even little children, it says you've known the Father, and the proverb says that a child is known by his actions, by his deeds. So even little children 
are supposed to walk in the ways of God, not in selfishness. And our job as a parent is to teach them not to be selfish and self-centered and putting themselves first. So that as they grow up, they're less and less selfish and more pointed toward God and toward other people and how they treat them. But they start out very selfish. And they get more so, which is what we call spoiled, getting their own way, doing what they want to do, going against what the parents want them to do. And boy, what a job that is to get them to be non-selfish and not putting self first. Me, my, and mine are the most basic responses or emotions of a human being from childhood on. You, yourself, and yours do not come near as handily to us. And we have to work on that. It's good if you start a child young, getting mind off self, and sharing, and giving, Because if you train him up in the way that he should go, then when he's old, he will not depart from it. But if he didn't learn it when he was young, he'll go his own way and be selfish all his life. So it takes a lot of training. It takes a lot of focus for a parent, just like it does with God. And he has that focus. He counts our hair. Knows how many we have. That's pretty strong focus on us and what he's working at doing with us. His plan and purpose is far beyond how many hairs we have. But that's how finite and detailed he gets about our lives. So, he's including everyone here. Verse 14, I've uh, written to you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning... And young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, he's talking to young men in the church here, and says, you've been strong, and you've kept the word of God in you. So he doesn't expect us to be weak, and to say, well, I'm young, and I, you know, that's my excuse, I'm still too young. No. No, he says, be strong. And he emphasizes that in verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This world is full of sin and selfishness. And if we love it and its culture and its ways, we love Satan's way, because he's the prince of the power of the air, broadcasts thoughts to seven billion people, and influences the minds of all the leaders and the teachers, and it's his society. So virtually everything out there has a satanic basis of one kind or another, whether it's 
strictly out-and-out demonism or whether it's just something that's pulled you a little way from God. It doesn't have to be really, really bad to not be good for you. A little bad is bad. So we have to analyze that, think about it, and say, what do I like? What do I go after? What am I concerned about? Where does my mind go and how much time does it spend there? Do I allow it to wander in places that it should not go? And is it worldly, selfish things where it tends to want to go? Well, that's something that is endemic to every human being. Uh, Our minds do not naturally gravitate to God. They naturally go away from God. So we have a struggle to get them going the right direction all the time. When he says, bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, that's what he's telling us. You go that direction and think on good things and right things and things of the light and not things that are evil. If you do love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. Well, this is the love of God that you keep the commandments. He says in chapter 5, verse 3 here, we're not to it yet. That's what love for God is, is keeping the commandments. Well, you can't love the world in its ways and have the Father in you. Because the world is full of sin. I mean, even even the so-called Christians, the ones that would even claim to follow Christ, don't keep the commandments. And if they don't, then where's everybody else? In one sense, even worse. Even though they might not be hypocrites, like some of the so-called Christians are. So there's nobody out there, except those few whom God has called, who even have a chance of knowing God right now. You know, that puts a lot on us, because when we were baptized and had that hands laid on us and, and received the Spirit of God, we became a member of his family of Elohim. And we've got to uphold that family name. Pray tell who else will. It's on us. There's nobody else out there in the whole wide world except those few thousand who are converted. And even of the 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70,000 that may still be, only a small remnant is going to respond to God and actually come to Him, obey Him, and know Him. And then he says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now he says he hates pride, the pride of life. Proud to be an American, proud to be a Jones or a Smith, proud to be this. Proud of my children. 
proud of my intellect, proud of my wife, proud of my car, proud of my basketball, whatever. Pride is not of the Father. Humility and meekness are. And the Father set the perfect example there. I mean, Christ had not sinned at all. And the Father didn't say, I am so proud of you, son. He didn't use the word pride because he doesn't have it. It's a base human emotion. He said, I am well pleased. That's where he left it, well pleased. There is no room for any kind of pride. Athletes say it all the time. You know, we're playing for pride. Well, you're praying, playing for the wrong thing then. What is pride? Self-aggrandizement. I'm the best. I'm better than you. And I'm proud of it. Why would you watch a boxing match? Two proud people trying to beat the brains out of each other. And there's no sport involved. It's just mayhem. I don't know how much we ought to watch sports. Maybe some is okay here and there, but we sure certainly shouldn't be uh, deeply into it the way the world gets into it because it is all about competition and pride for the most part. Uh, yeah, there's some athleticism. There's some beauty and some grace involved in some things. And Paul even used running a race as an example. So... Uh, he was aware of those things, and maybe he watched it a bit. But it certainly shouldn't become the center of our lives, as a lot of people make it. I mean, that's all I can talk about is sports. You've seen the kind. Be careful that there's not pride there. It's not of the Father, it's the world. And the world passes away. So if you've got interest in the world and pride in the world and the focus in the world, it's going away and guess who's going with it? <laughs> the world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Little children, it is the last time and as you have heard that an Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Now, he was at the end of his life. He was also at the end of the first iteration of the Church of God, which lasted from 31 A.D. until almost 100 A.D. or thereabouts, about 70 years. And... God had let all the, Christ had let all the apostles think that the end was near. He didn't lie to them. He didn't tell them, well, <laughs> sorry boys, we got 2,000 years to go. Uh, that would have taken an awful lot of starch out of them and motivation out of them and made them think, well, might as well relax. It's long ways past my lifetime. So he let them think that it was in their life. And John saw the church coming completely apart. All the apostles dead, 
And most people had gone into some kind of false religion or fallen away, and there wasn't much left. So looking at that, he thought, yes, this is the end time. Now we, nearly 2,000 years later, can read his words and know that the Antichrist is very, very close to being revealed as to which individual it is. Not very long. And we are in the end time. So, he thought he was, and he's giving his advice for those who would be in the end time. So here we are in it, and his advice, advice is for those of us who are in it. And that's keep the commandments, love God, and stay away from the world. And that was the instruction to us, is come out of the midst of her, my people, go to the wilderness, come out of Babylon, even to Babylon, but out of the center of it, out of the influence of it, and there you will be delivered, Micah 4. So it's still coming. It's still coming. I'll have some more to say about that before we're done this with this feast. God willing, and I live that long. Anyway, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. I think you can say that of the church today. They were with us in body, somewhat in mind perhaps, technical understanding of doctrine, but they weren't really of us, emotionally and deeply spiritually. And not being of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. They weren't truly converted, and they departed over such small and silly little things. I want to eat pigs. Oh, it's okay now, we can eat pigs. Oh, goody, goody. And they headed for it. Or whatever. The way of the world went right back to the swap that they'd had before, and the dog to his vomit. Faithful, true ones who serve God will stay and be faithful. But you have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Now, people say they worship God, but what do they deny? They deny his words. They deny his law. They deny him by denying what he stands for and what he wants us to do. So that makes them against Christ because they're against his words. 
That makes the whole Protestant world Antichrist. And they are going to accept the Antichrist because that's their way of thinking. Well, let's stop right there for tonight and pick it up there next time.